Greetings, Minecrafters, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 6, Original Worthiness, How to Get That Feeling Back. Tonight, you know, we're going to talk about that feeling that we were born into this world with, that feeling of original worthiness before any shameful messages were said to us. I mean, think about it. Picture, you know, a two-year-old walking around, you know, the, you know, sucking on a lollipop or something, a little chocolate pudding on the cheek for later. Is that little two-year-old, you know, kind of looking around, fretting, saying, how will I get through? No, of course not. I'm going to start by sharing a little story with you. Uh, my, our youngest daughter and I were at a beach close by in Lake Champlain, and it was a midweek and off day and everything, and it was just, just a beautiful day to just kind of hang out and read at the beach. And we're sitting on a blanket, uh, and over comes this adorable little one-ish-year-old baby, just cheeky and adorable in her little sunnet, kind of like hovering over her beautiful cheeks. You know, mom was watching her approach us at a safe, you know, 20 feet or so, just letting her have her independence. And our daughter was sort of lying on her on her tummy reading uh, a book, a textbook she had. She was taking a summer class on anthropology. It's big, huge textbook with great pictures. So over kind of waddles this little toddler trying to negotiate the sand. You know, it's hard enough to walk when you're maybe 14 months old, never mind trying to walk on sand. And she's got her little chubby hands out and off. She comes over and just kind of plunks herself down. She then, and mom, her mom's got a big smile on. She then proceeds to, to flip through the pages of our daughter's anthropology book, seemingly interested in the tribes of New Guinea. Big smile on, absolutely adorable. Then, then she proceeds to, to stick her very or pudgy, very sandy little fist into our daughter's bag of goldfish crackers and just helps herself with a huge smile on. And then she offered some to our daughter mixed with sand, whole chubby fistful of goldfish crackers and sand. Cutest thing ever. This talk was basically about resilience, so I, I didn't name it that. And it's amazing how things unfold in life, really, because that particular day, you know, I was just enjoying our, our daughter home for the summer from college, and we were just talking, then we thoroughly enjoyed this, this little visitor that we had. And interestingly, and I couldn't have predicted that, you know, later this story would become so incredibly me meaningful, so much so because it's so reflective of, of how so many people feel, and it made its way into one of my TED Talks, the one down in Washington, D.C., which, of course, couldn't have been more true. This sort of, you know, visual that I now had in my head of this adorable little cherub on the beach that day, I really sort of was just very contemplative around this whole experience because I couldn't help thinking she she just knew, she knew with everything she had in her 14-month-old little adorable body that she would be welcomed and that we would enjoy her and that she could help herself to goldfish crackers with a sandy little fist. There was not a doubt in her mind that we would accept her and love her and want her to sit with us. You know, I just couldn't help thinking about all the, the people out there, definitely teenagers, right? And then those in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and beyond, still trying to get this feeling back. They want so badly, more than anything else in the world, what that little 14-month-old is walking around with, that feeling of authentic confidence, that feeling of knowing, I mean, really knowing, like right down to your bone marrow, that you are worthy of all the love in the world. And that you are enough. So what happens? You know, how, how, does, how do we lose that feeling of, a, of authentic confidence? 
that that 14 month old has had what what happens what what happens if we don't have that at 30 40 50 or 60 or older well for one thing we know that about 40 percent of adults have experienced some sort of trauma right we've talked about that we also know that somewhere very close to that and this is guessing because people don't come out and talk about growing up with you know an alcoholic parent always um somewhere in the you know 35-ish high 30s percents close to 40 percent um of people grew up with at least one addicted parent and so uh there's some overlap there obviously and those percentages will look different um you know where obviously wherever you look but the point is it's a lot of people you know a lot of people with my students i'll i'll count i'll go one two three one two three one two three you know okay all of you you know metaphorically speaking have have you know one at one addicted parent at home and of course the trauma thing overlaps so somewhere uh, and then we have maybe not so severe we might have had and some of you out there who grew up maybe getting some love but not as much as you needed not as much as you needed and so this is what we're going to talk about today we're going to talk about just a little bit how it, you know how it was lost and then mostly how to get that feeling back because here's the good freaking news you can absolutely absolutely you can absolutely get that feeling back it's kind of like an archaeological dig you know just to excavate that authentic self back and put them in the driver's seat and as mentioned, I was raised by two alcoholic parents, one in recovery, one not so much. What happens an awful lot in addicted families, though it doesn't have to be that they're an addicted family, they can be dysfunctional, not be addicted. Although certainly, um, certainly very, 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 very common in addicted families is shame, of course. And we've discussed that, right? Uh, shame differs from, from guilt. I'm just going to clarify in case some of you are listening for the first time. Guilt has a job. Um, and, and guilt can also become toxic when it's hung on to for too long, for sure. Absolutely. For sure. Guilt, however, does have an original job, kind of like anger gets a bad rap when it does its job. It's good. It's when it's held on to not release all that, then it's not good anymore. Um, but guilt has, has the message that I, I made a mistake. It's an action word. It kind of prevents us from punching people in the schnozzy, spreading vicious rumors, slashing tires, you know, doing bad things, spreading vicious rumors, whatever. So guilt has a job, and the message is, I made a mistake. The difference with shame is, shame says, I am the mistake. And this is probably the most toxic emotion a human being can feel and experience. And it's the spiritual and emotional equivalent of drinking turpentine for breakfast instead of OJ. It's also important to try to understand um, that uh, this projection is unconscious. It's actually a, an a Freudian defense mechanism. So I know many people aren't super big fans of Freud. He did smoke enough cocaine to knock over a rather large horse. And at that same time, it's important to remember that he did he did contribute some valuable things that we still hang on to. And the defense mechanisms is certainly one of them, or are certainly one of them. And also the idea of the unconscious, because he really uh, he really is kind of responsible for kind of uncovering that let's say and so when people are projecting they're not aware that they're projecting and that's kind of important to understand because even if you're still in a place of a lot of pain and anger towards an addicted parent you know for a lot of the damage they did um some of it some of it we're not going to say all of it nobody gets a pass for their behavior okay 
Some of it was unconscious. However, this shame is enormously damaging. Like it's it's like drinking turpentine. We said it's so so damaging. And it's, you know, because this emotion of shame is so toxic and so excruciating and unbearable, people project it. So often um, the parents in, in the addicted alcoholic family you can swap in and out wherever you like, who experience all the shame from, you know, their behavior and um, the all the dynamics involved with addiction and, you know, just all of that underneath feeling like they can't stop and all the embarrassment and, and doing things that people find out about, blah, 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 right? It's tough to live with. And they therefore project their shame onto their kids. Now here's the clincher because they're doing that because, because they can't stand it themselves. And this is an attempt to kind of alleviate their own pain. And sadly it goes on to their kids, which, which it ends up in their kids' hard drives. Very terrible. And so this is often where it starts. And even, you know, on the spectrum of that, even if it wasn't addicted house or whatever, but you had some dysfunction, this is where it starts. And for the most part, we don't have any memory, like as far as cognitive, you know, can, we can, where we can retrieve it memory before about the age of three. And that's called infantile amnesia. And people might say, oh, I remember this. I remember that. No, you don't. You might have a feeling memory or, and, or you saw pictures in a DVD and kind of work those in. Um, but for the most part, we don't have any, you know, memories that are autobiographical or explicit, ex, you know, explicit conscious memory. We do, however, have a very solid uh, implicit memory, which is our unconscious memory or our feeling memory. So obviously, you know, two-year-olds are walking around having full conversations. Two and a half close to three-year-olds are definitely having full conversations with us. You say, how do, how do they not remember? They don't. But they have all the feelings of that. So think about it. If a child has been told all kinds of bad, shameful messages before that, they're going to have a memory of the feeling of it, just not a lot of clarity as far as bringing it up to the forefront to consciousness to kind of try to figure it out. So they're going to have this feeling of distrust for sure, probably, if they're in an addicted family, not knowing where that's coming from. And all these, you know, these feelings of not being enough, if there were all kinds of harmful things were said to them early on, it's all in the vault. It's all in the vault. And of course, cognitive behavioral therapy, also dialectical behavioral therapy, are really, really good for kind of um, making some connections between now thoughts and feelings and old feelings that are coming from the vault. And certainly, as mentioned, disclaimer, none of what we do on the podcast is meant to take the place of that, just to be hopefully a wonderful compliment to all that as you do some really good, good work on yourself. So after the awareness thing, that is the big one because we can't do what we don't know, right? That's pretty basic logic. However, once we know better, we need to do better. So the first step is awareness. And then the next step is making a conscious commitment to really kind of going through the mud. I can't really think of a better way to say it. And I know in the 12-step program, they say, you know, the only way out is through. And I have some really great memories of being around Alcoholics Anonymous as a kid, um, going there for one of my parents' anniversaries. I will admit I was also very motivated for the huge sheet cakes they had there with very high test sugar frosting, which I was like a special treat. And I also just, I actually remember how great the stories were. The stories were just so authentic and, and so cool. And even at that young age, I think I was 12 when, when she went in there, um, just I had on some level, I, I was just so in, just taken by the authenticity. You know, I may not have to have all the words for that back then. I was just so 
hooked and engaged and listening to these stories. I just can't tell you. So as mentioned earlier, and it's kind of a weave here, one of the really the first things, or it absolutely is the first thing, is the awareness. And the fact that you're listening tells me that you're ready because you're searching for something. You're not totally aware of it. You might be aware of it. But something's pulling at you for information to have this conversation in your head. Even if you're driving or in the shower and it's kind of the gears are turning, this means that you're approaching kind of like the the edge of thing in a good way, the edge of the cliff where you're just like looking over, not a bad way, looking over like, wow, with awe. I've got a great life and I, I just, I need to, I didn't need to do some work here. I want to let go of some of this toxicity. I want to figure it out. I want to make sense of it. Kind of finding those last few pieces to the puzzle. We want to make sense out of our lives. And honestly, I think we spend the majority of our adult lives kind of finding those pieces to the puzzle and having it make sense. So we have the awareness. We have the choice that, you know, enough is enough. Or they also, I, and I'm, I'm not quoting exactly. It's been a long time since I've, I've been there, but um, when we get sick and tired of being sick and tired, you know, we're sick of this, you know, this hamster in a wheel and, you know, toxic internal feedback loop that becomes very habitual, very self-reinforced, gets stronger with each spin of the wheel. And we finally decide, you know what, I'm going to throw a wrench in that wheel and stop it. Kind of like you throw a wrench in a bicycle tire, you know, screeching halt. No. Or, you know, or think of a bus and get off at the next stop. Just, I'm done. Life is too short. And when, you know, when you get to be 55, I've truthfully kind of always been like this, but you get to be 55, you realize there's less time in front of you than there is behind you. So I certainly have a very low tolerance for um, anyone who, who just isn't kind of worthy of my attention. Definitely, if they're toxic. I don't do toxic people. Goodbye. Gone. We'll talk about that later. You know, here's the part where the deciding to take control back is just huge. So Minecraft is about becoming the boss of our brain, correct? Yes, correct. So here's the thing. A lot of people don't realize, even when it's something like you grew up with an alcoholic parent or whatever, whatever, trauma, um, it, again, what doesn't mean it's easy. No one is saying it's easy. However, it comes down to realizing we can sort through the thoughts we want to keep and the thoughts we don't want. Again, no one's saying it easy. saying it's easy. It's about choice and it's about habit. It's absolutely about grit and practice because what we practice, we inevitably get, get good at. And the thing is, especially as children, as innocent little kids, you know, you were two, three, four, five, seven, whatever. And, and stuff's just being said to us. And obviously there's a power differential. Little children inherently know they're dependent on this person. Even if that person is sick, they know that they're inherently dependent. Their very survivorship depends on that adult. So they're going to be chasing down the approval, you know, being passive and submissive, because sadly, this is how it works when there's, you know, a, a sick and or toxic individual in the house. And the really important, one of the really important things to do is to really think about that. And that, that innocent inner child who's still walking around with you, that innocent little three or four year old is still walking around in your, you know, 50 or 55, 60 year old body. And, and to, to kind of have a conversation with yourself, that was then and this is now. I can fact check. I can fact check about all these harmful messages that go through my head about not being good enough at, at this, not good enough at that, not enough, not enough, not enough. I'll never mount anything. I'm not smart. You know, I was always in trouble with the, you know, ba 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 That was when you were in second grade or fourth grade or fifth grade or whatever. So we can, we can like, it, just like a bookshelf. If you want to save it, put it up on the bookshelf and we can choose to, to filter out what we really want to focus on. We do have that power. No, again, no one said it's easy. And we absolutely have the power to select the thoughts we want to keep, 
fact check and discard all of the crap that the toxic person, you know, kind of injected into us way back when. Okay, so this is, uh, let's say a little more, I'm going to say a, a deeper archaeological dig, because that's what we're talking about, right? And I would say this is true for most people. I'd like to say everyone, except for, you know, how I feel about polarized words. They don't really exist in reality. Most people, whether they grew up in an addictive family or not or whatever, if you've reached any level of adulthood, you've been around the block a few times. And I personally believe we spend the rest of our lives trying to put these pieces together, like I said. So a person who may have to do um, a bit of a, a, a deeper dig is somebody who's, who's identified with the shame, right? Brought it in the living room, brought it into their hard drive. I will say, um, and not to give them, you know, not, not to place any blame that isn't the idea, especially with a child. Nothing is a child's fault. So injected with shame, you can say that. But either way, they, be, they learn after hearing it over and over and over again, much like a computer, we get programmed, right? So this person can become shame-based when they identify with shame. So it becomes actually, you know, part of them. And I will humbly admit or honestly admit or hopefully it helps you grow or, uh, you know, there's a lot of strength and vulnerability. And I don't mind saying this to, you know, the world that I, w- I had this for years and I didn't know. I mean, I knew it was coming from, but again, a lot of it's unconscious. And, it, and I, the only way you really know is from behavior and, you know, relationships and what you're doing. And I, I had this shame thing going on in the living room for quite a while. And I was, I was aware of it for a lot of that time. It was just a lot to contend with. I, you know, quite a bit said to me by both parents growing up, and it just was a lot to work through. So here we go here with uh, John Bradshaw. He's amazing. His work is, is older, and I love it. It's back in the 80s, also when a lot of the ACOA work was done, 80s, 90s. And in, he does a lot with shame, um, healing the shame that binds you is where this is coming from. So John Bradshaw uh, talks about it in his book, Healing the Shame that Binds You. He says, for sh- as far as shame as an identity, we're talking about the internalization process, how it happened, how it got in your hard drive, and why maybe it's still wreaking havoc in your life now at you know, ages 25, 35, 45, 55, whatever. And he says, any human emotion can become internalized. When internalized, an emotion stops functioning as an emotion and becomes an identity. Internalization involves at least three processes. So the first one, he says, identification with unreliable and shame-based models. Faulty attachment bonding, he calls that, which is the source of carried shame. Very interesting. The second one is the trauma of abandonment, which severs the interpersonal bridge and the binding of feelings, needs, and drives with shame. And then the third is the interconnection of memory imprints, which form collages of shame. And then John kind of explains that this is, you know, partially how, how it's supposed to be. And then it kind of takes a bad direction. But the thing is, identification, he says, is one of our normal human processes. We always have the need to identify. Identification gives a sense of security. By belonging to something larger than ourselves, we feel the security and protection of the larger reality. You know, and then, and then John explains when children have shame-based parents, they identify with them. This is the first step in the child's internalizing shame because the children carry their parents' shame. Okay, so once you come into the awareness, it's got to be first, obviously. We can't do what we don't know. Then you make a conscious choice. You know, kind of remember standing the, on the edge of that beautiful view. You know, there's a lot more to life out here than, you know, me running this negative 
toxic feedback loop in my head all day, making the choice, decide to go through the grit and the practice. And then what we need to do is really start paying attention, paying attention because so much of this is, is unconscious. And often we can tell by our behaviors or and also what we say to ourselves. And so a lot of it's kind of off our radar in order for it to get on our radar so that we can make some changes. We have to really start paying attention, even journal it. Good idea. And it's also important to understand confirmation bias, which is also unconscious. And it's something even that work that's true even outside of the context that we're talking about right now. So we, it means that we naturally sort of look to find what we already believe to be true. So that's the first part of it. And the second part of it is we're unconsciously ignoring information that contradicts what we already believe to be true. And this is another reason that the paying attention is so important because, again, we're often not aware of this. So when we pull it into our awareness and our consciousness that, wow, I just avoided, you know, three compliments today. Why, why did I do that? Why did I put roadblocks up rather than letting the good in? Why did I do that? John gives some examples in his book. He says that uh, most often this voice, this inner voice in our head, is partially conscious or totally unconscious. Most of us are unaware of the habitual activity of the voice. We become aware of it in certain stressful situations of exposure when our shame is activated. After making a mistake, one might call oneself a stupid fool or say, there I go again, I'm such a blundering klutz. Before an important job interview, the voice might torment you with thoughts like, what makes you think you could handle responsibility of a job like this? Besides, you're too nervous. They'll know how nervous you are. So this kind of sheds light on, you know, the foundation for self-deprecation is obviously shame. Because again, we're talking about uh, the message of I am the mistake, right? Feeling flawed and defective in some way, which was why when we stub our toe, you know, then now comes to self-deprecating, where if you weren't so clumsy, you wouldn't do that. Or um, let's say people, I have this with my students constantly, when they're, you know, with their various labels of anxiety or depression, bipolar, ADHD, autism, you know, whatever. Rather than having just a sad day, we can say, you know, oh, there I go, there goes my depression again. You know, we call the secondary emotions, and, and John, I believe, would call that shame about shame. And then John explains, as far as confronting the inner voices, he said, I hope it is clear that the negative voice fosters and intensifies toxic shame. It initiates and exaggerates shame spirals. The voice is powerful. Once the voice system is set up, it becomes the key dynamic of toxic shame's functional autonomy. Many techniques have been devised for confronting and changing the voice in our heads. So when we speak about voice work, um, John Bradshaw gives someone by the name of Robert Firestone credit for his voice work. And again, not meant meant to take the place of therapy. That's where a lot of this is kind of like constructed for. And at the same time, John Bradshaw has kind of come up with with things we can do on our own, not in place of therapy, but can do on our own to kind of make some progress in this direction and perhaps complement therapy if you're if you're doing that that work now. So the very first one is to keep an overreaction diary. And certainly you can combine this journal with all the journaling. is a fantastic therapeutic tool, even to, just to do on your own. And he also explains that since you know we're already tortured by our own critical thoughts and self-attacks, so we tend to feel very threatened whenever others attack us in the same way. And so people who are shame-based commonly um, overreact to things. So this is a way to bring, bring more of that unconscious 
to the consciousness, to become aware of it. Only what we're aware of can we make changes with, right? So it's just my opinion. We keep things, you know, easy, simple. Remember the 22nd rule, keep the journal where you can reach it, just like we do with our gratitude journal. And it should, doesn't, not shouldn't, should, I don't like the word should, toss out should. If you choose, um, you can be, you know, write something longer, but really it doesn't need to be. It can just be bullets. It's not school. You don't have to do complete sentences. Just basically a quick, you know, a few sentences of what you overreacted to, who was there, just a quick description, just enough that it can trigger your head when you go back to see the progress you've made. The next one is good, and I'll tell you, I, I, I love this one. <laughs> when John Bradshaw talks about, you know, once you've written it down, once you've brought something into consciousness, which let's say one of the voices saying, you know, you're lazy, you're never going to amount to something or whatever, okay, then answer it. Answer the voice. I love that. You could, I want to drop the F-bomb on a podcast. I almost just did right now. I'll do it with my middle finger. Just picture it like, mm, you know, heck, screw you, right? I, I'm not lazy. I'm hardworking. I have a killer work ethic. And I'm a good partner. And I'm a good mother or father or whatever. And just get that stuff out. Talk back to it. Talk back to it. I don't care if that parent is no longer with us. Just as important if they left, left this earth. And then next, John talks about tracking down the inner critic. I like this one, too. It says, another way to expose the shaming voices comes from gestalt therapy, which is very cool. You might want to look that up. He says, I simply call it tracking down the inner critic. An inner self-critical dialogue goes on in all shame-based people. This game has been called the self-torture game. It is almost always so habitual that it is unconscious. And this is my own little addition here. I just came up with it. Not, I didn't just come up with it. This, the idea just popped back in my head. Um, in addition to answering the voice, I'm a big fan of not just the journaling. Journaling is great. And I'm also a big fan of letter writing. We do this with my students. With We have no intention of mailing them. And that letter is a different reason. It's actually a very positive reason. And if they choose to mail it, great. But this this is a situation, it just reminded me now, what if somebody's got a parent who's deceased and, it, you know, and if peace wasn't made, you know, didn't, loose ends weren't tied up or however you want to say. And, you know, and write that three, four, five page letter. I would suggest handwriting because that really gets it out. If you want to have a catharsis, of course, which is Greek for release, all that emotional release, write it all out and, and put it in an envelope. And then you can even have a little ceremony for yourself. But say it. Gotta say how we feel. And then uh, lastly, at least for today, this is going to be a two-parter at least. I'm realizing that right now because we've got more tips coming, so please listen to the next one as well. So John talks about stopping obsessive shaming thoughts. And if you've listened to our um, the podcast, there's two of them. It's not me. It's OCT. There's going to be some nice you know, connection there because really we're kind of bringing that into the specific context of shaming thoughts. So just a reminder to go back. To, I don't remember the episode number that is, but it's not me. It's OCT. And the not today, maybe tomorrow will work, you know, for most people. Um, and it's not me. It's OCT will work for most people. Again, it depends where you are kind of on the, on the spectrum of the, of the obsessive compulsive thinking. And then with the next podcast episode, we're going to get into some more stuff. He's got a lot of, a lot of tips here. And, Shame is intense. So, I mean, it takes commitment. It takes grit. You know, I think about, you know, real grit, moving rocks, digging ditches, you know, pretend like you're on the front lines or in the, even in the yard in the front lines, right? Doing big lifting. It's a big lift. And then the, the good news and the, and the good news is I can tell you from experience, oh, it feels, it's just such an alleviation. I, I, oh, if spirit's just free. We're going to get to that part next episode, too, because that involves letting go of a lot of things. That's that's coming. So anyway, he talks about um, 
the work that he's going to talk about next time, he has to give credit to, because it's important to give people credit, to Bain, Wolp, and Meinickbaum. And he talks about the, the technique that we're going to carry into next time, just to get you excited. We'll talk about it for a second. The technique amounts to interrupting the shaming thought with a sharp command to stop and putting a new thought, a more self-affirming thought, in its place. Shame-inducing thoughts tend to fall into three categories. The self-deprecating, he calls them shame put, self-put-down. So self-deprecating behavior, right? Uh, catastrophizing uh, about one's inability to handle the future, whatever that is. That's all the not enough stuff, right? And then critical shaming thoughts of remorse and regrets, which is just kind of, you know, resigning, just putting replay over and over and over, you know, things that have gone on in the past that, you know, are long, long since over. And then John continues, he said, shaming thoughts are about future sickness and catastrophe that can make one chronically anxious. And then he gives some examples. He said, the, he says, the if only I hadn't done such and such. Oh, the if onlys. Or the what I should have, could have, could have. I had this with that talk with my students constantly. There are sure, those are sure ways to trigger shame spirals. And the self-put downs, like, I'm too shy to make friends or get what I need or I'm so stupid. I mean, that I'm so stupid one, very common, are ways to trigger shame spirals. Obsessions about failures and limitations trigger spirals, which can often result in depression, like severe depression. He says the more you obsess, obsess about something, the more intense the shame spiral. Thought stopping seeks to stop the spiral at its source. Amen, Brother John. It, and, you know, it's also important to remind ourselves of a bunch of things because it helps, it helps to set the stage for our new mission of um, releasing shame and healing. And that is... Um, feelings aren't facts. Okay. Feelings are not facts. They're feelings. Feelings come second. Remember thoughts come first. So we can actually and do create how we feel based on the thoughts we allow to roll through our minds. So it's very important to, to fact check. Also memories are reconstructed each and every time we pull them off the bookshelf of long-term memory. So the original memory was, was only that way once. After that, it's been changed and changed and changed and changed. It's also important to remember. Then remember the order, right? Awareness. We cannot do what we don't know. Once we become, become aware, we become responsible. It's a quote from Dr. Dave Landers. I uh, can't take credit for that one. Once we become, once we become aware, we become, become responsible. I love that. Because, you know, it's like you get a little bit of past when you had no clue. And then after that, no more past. Because now, you know, the universe thinks you're ready and you're ready. So on this new path to becoming, to releasing the shame, healing, and letting go of being shame-based, being based in love and kindness and freedom and creativity and all these other things. Remember that thoughts come first and feelings come second. Remember to fact check. Fact check. Remember that feelings are not facts. Awareness. Okay, and then a choice, conscious choice, decision, commitment, commit. We're not looking for perfect. We know we don't like that word. That's a, that's a bar no one can reach, at least not consistently. Just sets us up to check a box with nowhere to go but down. So progress, not perfection. Awareness, commitment, awareness, commitment, practice, and grit. Doing the best we can. If we fall off the horse, so what? We get back up on, okay? Paying attention so that, so that you know and be, you're becoming aware of the, of the internal dialogue going on in your mind. This stuff's been in the vault, if you're my age, for years. So it's very important to write that stuff down when it creeps up, when you're driving in the shower, you know, on the beach or whatever. Write that stuff down. You know, it's also really important with this process, which I wouldn't say as much with the other things we've talked about. It's certainly important. I just don't know if I would have emphasized it so much. And that's 
patience and not something the good Lord put in my gift bag. I have lots of good stuff. He put lots of good traits, lots of good things that he put in there. But let me tell you, patience was left out. Not one of the gifts the good Lord gave me. You know, and this is, well, I'm sure due to ADHD, but this is surely, you know, just had me having to work a little harder at it in the beginning um, because I want everything yesterday, right? And once I kind of got onto the shame thing, I'm like, okay, let's go, let's heal, let's go, let's go. And it's, you know, that stuff's been in the vault for a very long time. And so it, it's a gradual process. And I'll tell you too, though, in a super positive way, that once you kind of like, once you get in the zone with it, you get in the groove, you're aware and that energy is there, there's momentum. So even though it starts out kind of gradual, once you get sort of you find your authentic swing, I'm thinking of The Legends of Bagger Vans, I love that movie. Once, once you find your, your authentic swing, then it really picks up pace because you're in the healing mode and it really starts to happen and your whole world opens up. Trust me. I am sure. And that note, you see, because the authentic self has always been there. She's just been, or he or they, have just been pushed into the trunk, let's say metaphorically with a car, and being driven by the false self of this, you know, creation of what everybody or you know wanted you to be. All the put-downs, all the everything, all the negative and shaming statements, and this person who's been driving this facade it doesn't nearly have the strength of the authentic self. But the thing is, the authentic self has never gone away. They're right there. It's just that they kind of wait to be invited. They're authentic. They wait to be invited. They will slide right over into the driver's seat as soon as you open the door and invite them back. I'd like to thank my Minecrafters across the world for listening. And as you know, I like to pick a country each week to thank. So this week, I'd like to send a huge shout out to the UK. Thank you for listening, UK and everyone. This is Kimberly Quinn signing off from Northern Vermont. Have a mindful day. Uh-huh.